Good morning, Messy House. My name is Freke and I teach at Amherst College. Could you open your Bibles to Titus 2 from verse 1 to verse 10? Titus 2 from verse 1 to verse 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young, younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God as Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another wonderful day. We thank you because you are God over everything. We thank you for the past week which for some of us was not perfect and which for some of us might not have even been good. But despite all that we went through, you still remain God. And we thank you for this moments that we are going to go through your word. We thank you for Robert as he's about to preach your word. We ask, Lord, that you open our hearts, you open our minds, and that whatever we learn this morning that that message sticks in our hearts and that we'll practice them for the rest of our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. And I want to welcome you. I want to welcome you to remain in that uh, Titus 2 passage we're going to talk about today. We've been uh, talking about a sermon series uh, that has been called Generation Next. And so we've been going through Old Testament and New Testament passages that speak to the investment that's needed by God's people into younger generations and how important that is. Um, and the place or the, or the best environment for there to be an investment in the next generation such that they just don't know stuff but they are fluent in who God is and His ways is the home intertwined with the church. This is God's design for how the next generation is raised up 
in faith and practice in the home and in the church. And this environment of the home is, is incredibly important. Last week, uh, we talked about some of the nitty-gritty of parenting, this instructing and disciplining and doing that in a highly relational context. Um, but if you don't have a home where those kind of things are happening, uh, it's, it's mere theory. And so it's incredibly important that there be this environment of the home, an intentional environment. And this is what today's passage from Titus uh, tells us, is this intentionality of both home and church life. Now, Titus is a, a letter written to a young pastor who uh, has been left to, to take over for Paul after he's planted uh, on the island of Crete, which is one, one of the Greek isles, beautiful, what's the largest isle, I think, uh, in the Greek isles. It's an incredibly beautiful uh, place, but Titus's uh, job was, he had a job cut out for him. It was not an easy group of people to work with, and so he's being given this instruction in, in the book of Titus to help him uh, to establish that church. And I said this last week, and Last week, oftentimes, Paul uh, has this section in his uh, letters that's oftentimes called the household code, and he'll just go through different members of the household and uh, give instruction in regard to those folks, and he does this in Titus, and he gives teachings to old men and old women and young men and young women and bond servants. Um, I'm not going to address the bond servant piece because it'd take me like 30 minutes to talk about that, and we'd be here all day. Um, but uh, Corey Tellman preached a, an excellent sermon in our short books sermon series uh, on Philemon, and he dug down pretty deep in the whole bondservant uh, topic. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that uh, if you're interested in exploring that. But we're going to talk about the foundation of this code, this household code, and then we're going to talk about the teachings in each, to each one of these groups, older men, older women, younger women, and younger Men. So what's the foundation? The foundation is sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Um, you see this in the bookends around the code, right? Two, Titus 2.1 says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then at the end of the code, in 2 uh, verse 10, second half, So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so he's telling Titus that what, whatever it is he's teaching his church to do, it needs to be grounded in sound doctrine. It needs to be in accordance with sound doctrine. It needs to be something that adorns whatever behavior he's exhorting. It needs to adorn uh, the, the doctrine. Now, what is this sound doctrine or healthy doctrine would be another way uh, to word this. There's a hint there in that uh, 2.10 there. It says the doctrine of God our Savior. Uh, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the message that, that there, is, uh, uh, there, there, there are human beings on this planet, every human being that is a sinner and separated from God. But that there is a good God. He has made a way for sinful human beings to be forgiven and reconciled in relationship to Him. And that this can be received by faith. And then you're, you're, you're brought into a relationship with God through faith. That gospel not only saves human beings, but it then continues to shape 
those human beings as committed Christians. And so I want you to hear that again, that the gospel not only saves us, but it shapes us. Uh, one of the things that sin does to us is that it misshapes us. It perverts us. That's uh, the, the, the root idea of perversion. It's, we're, we're twisted by sin. So not only do we need to be forgiven of that, we need to be reshaped. We need, we need to be straightened out by the gospel in an ongoing way. And these behaviors that come from a gospel-saved, gospel-shaped kind of a life, uh, they adorn the gospel. They point to the gospel. Um, when you think of something that, that's adorning something else, right? You, you might think of, like, when sometimes people walk in our home, they say, you have such a beautiful home. Are they, are they talking about the walls and the floor and the ceiling? Well, yes. I, I, to some degree, they, they are, but they're also saying that because it's adorned with home decor, right? And that home decor accentuates the walls and the ceiling and the floor. And so they, they, they're seeing the home, but they're seeing a home adorned. And so this is, this is similar to what he's saying here. I want you to preach sound doctrine, and I want you to preach sound behavior that will adorn the, the, the doctrine, the gospel, and to shine a light on that gospel. And again, Apostle Paul does this uh, thing where at the beginning of his books, he oftentimes just spends uh, lots of, of ink on the gospel, getting that straight, and then calling people to faith in the gospel. And then, and only then, does he move into what's oftentimes called the ethical sections of, okay, now I want you to do this and be this, and, and it's grounded in uh, the, the, the gospel. Now, there were other household codes being written in Paul's day, uh, literally for hundreds of, of years before uh, Paul, and those household codes were not grounded in the gospel. Uh, those other household codes were grounded in ideas around superiority and inferiority. That's how those codes were, were, were grounded. So, for example, this is a quote from Aristotle giving his a version of a household code. He says this, For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female just as the elder and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. So that's another version of a household code. And instead of being grounded in the gospel and the truth of God, it's grounded in Aristotle's understanding of what he sees as self-evident in, quote, nature. And what he sees as he uh, views nature as inferiority in women, inferiority in those who uh, are younger, and superiority in males, especially older males. But that's not what Paul's doing here. Now, Paul does advocate for authority. There is biblical authority. But the ground of it is not superiority, inferiority. The ground of it is the gospel. And so this sound doctrine um, is adorned by the behavior, by the character and the behavior of each of these groups that he's going to walk through, which again, you see these groupings in ancient world household codes. So the first one, that sound doctrine is adorned by older men who are stable and sound. The gospel is adorned by older men who are stable 
and sound. Here's what he says to the older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So what's, again, typical of ancient world household codes is basically older men, you're in charge. And everyone else needs to do what they're told. That's, that's the gist. But Paul starts with talking about the older men, and, and he doesn't point to their authority, although most of them pro- probably have biblical authority in, in their homes, in their church. But he points to a whole different set of expectations for these older men, that they would be sound and stable. So think about what he's saying here in regards to the stable category. Uh, he's saying that they are to be sober-minded, right? So, so clear-headed, especially in a time of crisis. Their thinking gets clearer instead of less clear in the time of chaos. Then they're to be dignified, right? That, that means they're to be worthy of respect. Is that by the mere fact that they have a position as older man? No, they're to be worthy of respect because over the long haul, they have exemplified this stability, over time. They are to be self-controlled. Uh, this is similar to sober-minded. It's the, the external working out of sober-minded, so clear-headed in difficult situations and chaos, and that is then lived out with actions and attitudes and words that are under control. They're self-controlled. Older men are to be stable. Older men are to be sound Use this word sound, same word that's connected to, to doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy, mature, complete, right? Sound in the faith, right? Consistent in their display of their reliance on God over decade after decade, right? That's who they're supposed to be. Uh, they're supposed to be sound in love. So there'd be this consistent display of unconditional love to those who are under their care, uh, I think that's important that he tells them to be sound in love. They're not just Stoics who are stable and strong and they, nothing ever gets to them. This is a loving kind of a vision of the older man. And then finishes up by telling them that they ought to be steadfast. And this is translating the Greek word hupomone, which is this idea of bearing up under weight. And so it's not just a endure, kind of just let it happen and then wait till it gets better, but a moving through difficult times and doing that over the long haul. He's describing them to some degree like a ballast. So a ballast in a boat is something that brings stability to the boat. And it's basically a weight or a counterweight that pushes the boat down in the water a little bit deeper under the waterline so that when the storms come, there's stability. So he's, he's casting that vision for the older man to be a ballast. Uh, do, do older men need to hear this in the U.S., right? Is this just something that uh, the older men in, in the congregation in Crete needed to hear? No, I, I think that the, the, the folks in, in, in the U.S. need to hear this, the older men. I think one of the things about older men right now is that they think they have permission to just check out. Uh, my son Cooper was working at a golf course in Palm Springs his gap year between high school and college. There are over 100 elite golf courses in the greater Palm Springs area. The majority of people walking around and playing golf on those over 100 golf courses are older men. 
And I talked to Cooper about this, and he said, yeah, their life consists basically of they get up, they have an early tea time on the golf course, they play 18 holes of golf, uh, they have a nice lunch in the club, they go take a nap, they get up, they, they watch some cable news, they uh, have dinner with their wife, and they go to bed, and they get up and do the next thing, do the same thing the next day. And I was like, that's pathetic. That's pathetic. I mean, so, some of these guys founded Fortune 500 companies. <laughs> and they're just playing golf and eating lunch and watching TV. That's pathetic. That's not, that's not the vision that, that Paul is casting for these older men to be sound and to be stable for, for both their families but also for their churches, for their society. Now, you may be hearing that if you're an older man. We don't have many older men in here. And you're like, what, t- what, ha- what age is older? I don't know. I'm not going to say. Um, <laughs> and you're thinking, well, I'm not sound and I'm not stable or uh, I'm kind of sound and kind of stable, right? And I think this is one of the things about aging is you, you think you're going to really have it all together. You're going to be uh, so amazing, you know, when, when you're however old you think old is, okay? But the truth is you're still a wreck, you're still a mess. You're still afraid. You, you, you're still struggling. You, you, you're still working through your own insecurities. It, it, it doesn't change, although it does. Because if you, if you are sound and stable, it's because you have grown in your reliance on gospel grace. That's what makes you sound and stable. Not that you reach some pinnacle. No, you're more aware of your issues and your problems than, than you were when you were 30. But you are more aware of the gospel and the resources that are there for you to not just be saved by them, but to be shaped by the gospel. And you've done that over the long haul, decade after decade. And so it does bring you to a place of being a ballast. You are able to be sound and stable, but it's because you've learned how to cling to the gospel grace. So then... He moves on to talking about the older women and letting them know that the, the, the sound doctrine is adorned by older women who have self-control and who coach younger women. The gospel is adorned by those who have self-control and coach the younger women. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. And I'll stop right there in that verse 4 until we move to the next uh, group. So he's letting the, the women of Crete know that they need to, be, they need to have self-control and they need to, to teach and train uh, the next generation of women. And the two areas of control are control over their mouth and control over their wine. And so this, this control over their mouth... Um, Women are highly relational, for the most part. And, and, and they have the gift of oral communication. Uh, when Melanie goes to have an appointment with a woman, and they're going to meet up at Panera Bread, I'm, I'm serious, it's usually three to four hours long. When I go to have an appointment at Panera Bread with a guy, it's about one to 1.5 hour tops. Right? And it's just, it's just different. 
It's just different. Now, that doesn't mean men can't talk for four hours. It doesn't mean women can't talk for one. I know you start getting hung up on the whole stereotype, but, but stereotypes are a stereotype for a reason. Like, there, there is something to it that women are highly relation, relational in general and, and have this gift of communicating, right? And that's a beautiful thing until it gets twisted by sin. And then it turns into gossip and it turns into slander. And he's saying, get that under control. Have self-control in the area of gossip and slander. Now, he also tells them to get control over their alcohol consumption. Now, I don't think he's saying that, you know, women as a rule have more trouble with alcohol than, than men. I think this is probably pretty occasional, right? Because uh, Crete was pretty much like the party school, right? Um, I mean, consider what Paul says about Cretans in the first chapter of Titus, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound, there's that word again, in the faith. Right? So... I mean, he's like quoting their own newspaper. Like, they say this about themselves, and it's true, right? So this is a, a real problem in that particular culture, in that particular church, this control over alcohol. Um, and so he's encouraging them to get, get control over that. And so that, that doesn't necessarily be that that's the only area of control we need to be worried about, right? There's all kinds of domains in our lives that the Lord is asking us to get self-control over that, both men and women. Now, he moves on, though, to say that not only does he want them to be concerned about self-control, he wants them to coach the younger women. Right? He says, teach what is good, and so train the young women. And so when Paul is rebuking their slander and uh, their slavery to alcohol, he's not exhibiting some kind of misogyny that's just like, I'm dismissing these women. He's actually inviting the same women that he's just rebuked about self-control issues. He's inviting them in to be, being in a teaching ministry to the younger women, telling them to teach them what is good, teach them sound doctrine. He's, he's, he's treating these women as, as having a, a theological understanding and scriptural understanding, and then being able to, to pass that on to the next generation. And so they're being exhorted to be disciple makers. He sees them as fully functioning disciples that have all the gifts and, 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 and power from the Holy Spirit they need to pour in to the next generation. Uh, this is a good reminder to all of us that we are all player coaches. Right? When we say we want to make disciples who make disciples, it's not like you reach some place where you're like, okay, now I am 100% a disciple and now I turn and I make a disciple of someone else. It's not like that. We're always growing. We're always in the process of being, quote, made a disciple. And we're always given opportunities to turn and then disciple someone else. And so he, this is the way he's talking to the women of the Church of Crete. He's addressing issues that they're facing as disciples of Jesus and inviting them to then turn and make disciples of others. Now, one of, one of the, the, the things about discipleship is that it, it's more than just passing on information. 
And in a minute, he's going to tell the older women to teach the younger women to be keepers of the home, right? to be working at home. And even that is a discipleship issue. Right? You don't just know how to keep a home. Right? Like you, it, it's, not, it's not just, oh, I just know exactly what I'm doing. Now, so my wife, Melanie, is an amazing homemaker. She has made a home that, that has blessed our children, it has blessed me, and it has blessed hundreds of people who have come through our door. And you think, well, she just arrived on the scene like that. She just knows how to do that stuff. I don't know how to do that stuff. No, she had no idea how to do those things. The home that she grew up in was not a home of, of human thriving. It was not a home that was made by a godly mother. So she had to learn from other mothers, other wives, other homemakers that she watched and she asked questions of and she spent time with and she learned from them and she learned from reading books. She, she learned from trial and error. But she's been on this journey of, of being trained in, 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 by older women and by growing in the keeping of a home. I am incredibly grateful for that. And so are my kids. When they get in their 20s, mothers of young children, they'll, they'll, they'll thank you, okay? Just hang in there. They're not going to thank you when they're four. Um, but when they're 24, they do. They appreciate it, especially as they get out into the world. They uh, see how other folks have, have ha not had that um, as they've grown. So, sound doctrine is adorned by older women who are exhibiting both self-control but also coaching the next generation. Now the third group is younger women. Sound doctrines adorned by younger women who care and cultivate. Care and cultivate is what he is talking about here. Verse 4, So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So he's, he's saying, I want you to train them to care for their children and husbands or love their children and husbands. You say, well, why do they need to be trained to love? I mean, isn't that just like an emotional thing? You just kind of feel love for your husband? You just feel love for your children? Well, actually, biblically, love is a lot more than just feelings. It, it, it is, includes feelings and affections for your husband, affections for your children are important and a work of the Spirit through the gospel. But, but it's more than that, right? And, and part of how he's exhorting them to love them is to, to cultivate a home. Because homes just don't happen. Those of you that are trying to do this, it doesn't just happen. I mean, even if, if you can get the meal cooked and you can get the clothes cleaned and the house halfway clean, it's still not a home, right? This takes a, a ton of work, a ton of intentionality. And it is a labor of love for a husband and children. Now, I think when, we, when we, we see a text like this, a lot of folks would just like to dismiss it just out of hand. Just say, well, that's first century context. We, we, don't, we don't need to think about this anymore. And there are some contextual things that we need to think about, right? Like in the first century, um, women did not really have a choice to work outside the home. There was no birth control. There was no breast pump, okay? And so if you were married, you were having kids, and you were at home. And th th so this, this was your calling. Now, we're, we're grateful that there are now opportunities for women to work outside the home. And the Bible in no way prohibits that, not at all. But it does point 
to the necessity of wives and mothers to prioritize the home. Doesn't pr- prohibit, does not prohibit work outside the home. You can even see in Proverbs 31. She's working outside the home. She, she, she's she's uh, uh, getting some income through some of the things she's doing. And so the, the Bible's not prohibiting that, but it is exhorting women to prioritize the home. If you're a wife, you're a mother. And you see that in 1 Timothy. You see that in Proverbs 31. It is throughout Old Testament and New Testament that you prioritize the home. Now, it doesn't mean that men don't do chores at home. It doesn't, that's not what we're talking about. Right? They, they need to be a part of that. But the prioritization is something that should be in the back of every Christian woman's mind. And if they are a wife, they are mother to prioritize their home. And this is something that is dismissed. It, it, it is looked down upon in our culture to some degree. Um, almost to the point where I just can't even believe how much of a dismissal that uh, the culture is doing right now. You know, I, I, was, I was looking at the, the BBC Instagram back in November, kind of like in the, uh, the, 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 the COVID time. That's, it, it was really uh, rough in terms of people's employment and people are at home with their kids. And I started looking at this little five-frame thing in the BBC Instagram. And this is the, the, the first frame and it's kind of sounding the, the alarm that th- there's this risk that we're going to go back to the 1950s in terms of women's opportunities. And it shows this woman, and she's folding towels. As if this is like the most horrible thing that anyone could do is fold towels. Right? It's like, no, we need towels. Like, we need them to be washed and dried and folded. And the family needs towels. Like, this is not something that's like the worst thing ever. Right? It's something that should be valued, something that should be seen as a part of a calling, of making a home. The next slide uh, said, says that women are doing more chores than men, and the pandemic is making this worse. And, and so part of the cultural understanding is that if you do unpaid work, it's to be dismissed, it's to be looked down upon. God doesn't think that way. Just because it's unpaid doesn't mean it doesn't bring glory and honor to God and good to your family and to your church and to your world. Renew your mind on this stuff because the Scripture has a very different take on it. And the picture, of course, is this mom making dinner for her family with her daughter in the kitchen who's helping her make dinner for the family. I'm like, this is awesome! (laughs) But from the perspective of the BBC, it's like, this is the most horrible thing that could ever happen. It just kind of gets worse. Um, the, the next slide, uh, again, is the same kind of like more unpaid hours as if the only thing that matters is if you can contribute to the economy. Like that's the highest value and anything else is just to be dismissed. Uh, the, the next slide uh, is sounding the alarm that if women are at home taking care of their families, they're going to suffer mental illness. Like, are you kidding me? You're at home caring for your kids, caring for your husband, making a home, and that's going to make you mentally ill? I, I mean, it's unbelievable the kind of perspective that's being pumped out in this world. And then the, sort of the last slide is, is, they just go ahead and say it out loud. It's like it makes economic sense to make sure women are in the workforce. Well, sure, it makes, quote, economic sense, but that's not the only sense that matters. 
But that is the only sense that matters in our culture. There are things that matter that are not monetized in this world. Newsflash! And making a home is one of those. Creating a home where a family can thrive. And in that last picture, she's sitting on the couch with a cup of tea, having a moment to herself with a warm blanket on her feet. I'm like, that looks pretty good. <laughs> right? this, is, this is not the apocalypse that's occurring. Now, as I said before, the, the, one of the, 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 the most precious ways that a wife, a mother can love, can care for their family is to cultivate a home. It's one of the most difficult and important jobs on the planet. One of the other things I keep seeing in the news is articles helping stay-at-home moms to, to take the skills that they're applying in the stay-at-home uh, job and put that on a resume so that they can then get out into uh, the, the real world and make some money. And this one article has 15 skills that a mom employs in the course of her day. Time management skills, planning skills, prioritization skills, crisis management skills, problem-solving skills, communication skills, being a persuasive influencer, negotiating skills, project management skills, event planning skills, people management skills, team management skills, financial management, creative skills, and mentoring skills. That's an impressive resume. What if you were looking for someone to fill a position and you put those 15 things on? you got to do all this. You're not going to have very many applicants, I'll tell you that. And so I look at that list, and, and, and for one, I'm just like grateful for those that, that, that stay at home, those that prioritize their career such that they can be at home more in order to, to do these kinds of very difficult things to make a home. And then I, th I think, well, okay, so you, you find mom a job and get them out of doing these skills at home. Who's going to do those skills when she's gone? You're going to outsource that? that? It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. This, this whole making of a home is something that's incredibly valuable to God. It's something that is, it requires a great amount of skill. Again, I, I'm so grateful that Melanie has been able to be at home with our kids. This is so strategic for us, both for our kids, but also for our church. This is like the backstage stuff that most of you never saw, is, is her making a home, not just so our kids can thrive, but that so many others could come in and, and, and be ministered to, be given the gospel, be discipled. Uh, our home has been a hub. It's been a home base for so much of the ministry of this church, and it would not have happened had it not been for a mom and a wife who made that a priority. And it, it's beautiful to God. It's beautiful to God, and it has been an incredible blessing to this church. Now, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm kind of exhorting this truth about homemaking, and so what happens is those moms that are working are, are starting to feel con condemned or they're mad at me. Or, and I, I, want, I want you to say that that's not what I'm trying to do. And every, every family has decisions they have to make. They have financial dynamics. And, and what I'm watching in our church is, is so many families coming up with creative solutions in order to, to bring in the income that they need and still stay committed and focused on prioritizing the family. 
in the home. And so what, what I don't want you to hear me saying is one size fits all, this is the only way to do it. But I do want you to hear that wives and mothers are to prioritize their home. And how you do that, the creative ways you come up with as you and your husband pray and talk, that, that, that's something that, that you work out. Right? But know that Scripture is exhorting you to prioritize your home. More, more what I want to do is I want to encourage the discouraged homemaker. You're working at this. You're raising kids. You're, 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 you're folding those towels. And, and you're just thinking, this doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters to God. And it is world-changing. You don't have healthy homes. You've got healthy nothing. You don't have a healthy church. You don't have a healthy uh, society. You don't have a healthy world. I'm, I'm telling you, this, this is like ground zero for the kingdom of God is a home. And so I, I want to encourage those that you feel discouraged in that day-to-day -day making of a home, raising children, having to, to sacrifice in, in ways that people don't see. No one sees it, but God sees it. God sees it. I also want to encourage the begrudging homemaker. You're doing it. You know you should. You, you, you're, you're thinking, I'm going to do this until, you know, X amount of years and the kids get in school, but I'm, you know, just, you're just kind of gritting your teeth. Don't do that. Don't rely on gospel grace. Transform your heart. This is a calling. He, he will empower that calling. He will bring joy into that calling. And so, so don't, don't, don't settle for the kind of, I'm going to begrudge, begrudgingly go through this and then I'll be able to get out into the real world. No, no, this is a, a beautiful calling from God. And he will, he will sustain, sustain you. And then the third is just the person is deceived by the culture. You've bought in to the idea that if your work's not monetized, you don't matter. That's a lie. That's a lie. So, so renew your mind this morning. That, that regardless of, of whether or not your calling has a paycheck attached to it or your calling does not, you do your calling. And the Lord honors that. He gives you grace, sustains you in that. The last group of the younger men, sound doctrines adorned by younger men who are self-controlled and they contribute. So there's more of this self-control self stuff. Verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and your teaching. Show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So young men, to, to, to be self-controlled and to contribute. Young men can get out of control. Those of you that have boys, you know what I'm talking about. Right? Even your physiology contributes to being out of control. Testosterone tends to make you more aggressive and more of a risk taker. So even physiologically, right? in general. It doesn't mean women can't take risks. doesn't mean women can't be aggressive. Okay, That's not what I'm saying. But there's, in general, little boys just different. They're just different. And uh, those of you that have them, you know what I'm talking about. And so he's, he's saying... Get that under control. <laughs> Rein that in. Right? Self-control. Um, but not just control, but also contribute. Right? Not just control, but contribute. What Paul is saying, he wants to point all of that masculine strength into a particular direction. 
He wants them to be contributors, to be models, to be examples, right, of teaching, the teaching. Back to that sound doctrine idea, that these young men are being examples, they're being models, they're exemplifying what they say they believe. They are living lives of integrity and dignity and sound speech. He says something similar to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. It's a very similar kind of a instruction to young Timothy. And when, what's the result? If these young men live in accordance with sound doctrine, their critics, their opponents are put to shame. And so those that are criticizing the gospel, they're criticizing the church, they, they see these young men who are exemplifying the gospel, they're adorning the gospel, and these opponents are saying, oh, maybe there is something to this gospel. If this gospel can transform young men, there must be a God. That's essentially what he's saying. And it's true today. It's true today. Um, what, what Paul describes here is a little bit like taming a young a wild stallion, right? There, there's a lot of strength, but it's not doing anything. It's just running around the pasture, it's just leaping up and playing and frolicking, but it's not doing, it's not producing anything. So you go out and you, and you work with that young stallion and, 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 and you break that young stallion and you teach that young stallion to do something with its strength. And this is something similar to what Paul is exhorting here. He's like, self-control, but then contribute. There's a subset of young male culture that is just a wild stallion. It's all about the next extreme sport. And what are they accomplishing? Nothing. It's an adrenaline rush. Good for you. So impressed. Some of them stay into that mode until they're like buying rocket ships with their billions and going up into the air. You're like, wow, so impressive. I mean, come on. Get yourself under control and contribute. That, that's what God wants for young men. I also want to acknowledge that, that young men are struggling in our culture. For the first time in U.S. history, young men will have less education than their fathers. Boys have fallen behind girls in educational proficiency in all 70 developed nations around the world. Young men make up the majority of those that are being arrested and put in prison. Young men are almost always the ones responsible for gun violence, including mass shootings. Young men are, are way more likely to commit suicide than women. Many women are growing up in the exact same environments, messed up as those environments are, but young men are having different outcomes than women. It's a crisis, literally, and no one's talking about it. Uh, researcher and author, Dr. Warren Farrell, who's not a Christian, but he's written a book called Boy Crisis. And he's got a TED Talk and uh, has some interesting things to say. But he has two reasons why he thinks the young men are, are having the crisis that they're having. The one is dad-deprived boys. And again, he's not a Christian, not reading the Bible. He's just doing research. And he's standing on the TED stage, and he's like, it's dad-deprived boys. I'm like, duh. You had to do research for that? I mean, come on. 
Dad-deprived boys. The second thing he mentions is men-deprived boys in schools because there's such a lack of men who are teachers and coaches in the schools. And so he says they don't even have an opportunity to have a surrogate dad in the schools that can help them. So they have no dad at home and they have no male teacher at school. And he says the result is the lack of purpose. The young men have a lack of purpose. And it's true. It, it, it's such an, uh, you know, an epidemic in our nation. And so in today's world, if young men have control over their addictions and over their schedules, over their finances, and they contribute to their family, to their church, to their society, it's a miracle. It adorns the gospel. When you young guys stop just running around like wild stallions and let the Lord in the power of the gospel by the Spirit take that strength and point it to a place of contribution. It's miraculous. It's miraculous. And it's, it's, and it's really something that points to the gospel. Now, these young men won't be able to do that unless they have older men in their lives. I mean, the writer of that book is not wrong. And many young men are growing up in homes where they don't have a dad. They haven't had mentors. And, oh, look, where could they find a mentor? Oh, in the church. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? It's such a beautiful safety net where if you didn't have a dad or you didn't have any uh, mentors in school, but you're in Christ, you're part of a church, there's a culture of discipleship in that church, and that church is pouring into both the young women and the young men. And the world is looking in at these young men and young women that are thriving, and they go, what's going on in there? And we say, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. It's not just some cool program we came up with or some external behaviors that we just try to shape. It's the gospel. It's a sound doctrine. That's what it is. And these behaviors are, have been shaped by that gospel. It's incredibly powerful. And I want you to see in the scriptures that this vision that we've been casting about reaching back to the next generation, both in our kids' ministry but also in college students, look, this is not just something we're saying. Like, it's something that's in the scriptures. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, is exhorting the people of God to invest in the next generation that the older men and women would reach back to the younger men and women. So I think there's four commitments that come out of this text uh, in regard to investing in the next generation. One is commitment to sound doctrine. That seems obvious. You've got to get the truth claims of the gospel right if you're going to continue on in adorning those truth claims. And sometimes people are like, well, we don't... We don't need to really major on the doctrine. We just need to major on the deeds and the whole doctrine. No. You might make it one generation, but if you don't have the doctrine, you have nothing to adorn. If you don't have the doctrine, you don't have the, the, the power to continue in behaving in the ways that are going to point back to the gospel. I grew up in a church like this. I call this the, church, the, the style of the church that I grew up in, churchianity, not Christianity, churchianity. And they were good people. They worked hard and they stayed married, but their children didn't. And they're kind of scratching their heads like, what happened? Like we took them to church and we were good people. Why aren't they good people? 
Because they didn't get the gospel. That's why. They didn't get the doctrine. And if they don't get the doctrine, then they're not going to continue in the deeds that exemplify the doctrine. So we've got to get the doctrine right. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. You need to hear that. But this whole thing of, of living this new life in Christ, it, it begins with your belief in, your trust in, your reliance upon the gospel, the grace that Christ has paid for for you at the cross. And uh, you receive that by faith. It's not something you have to work for. It's something you receive. And if, if it's something that you today are ready to receive, I would encourage you to do that or at least have a conversation with someone in the room. I'll be around Let's talk about it. Let's get the foundation laid, and then we can build on that foundation going forward. Second commitment is a commitment to living obedient lives that adorn the sound doctrine. You just kind of look at the general themes here. We, we could all draw from these themes. If we're lacking stability or soundness or lacking control over some part of our lives or, or, or we need to embrace a calling of contribution instead of just taking and taking and taking, we need gospel grace this morning. To, to save us, but to continue to shape us as we embrace these exhortations from Titus chapter 2. Third, commitment to prioritization of making a home. The commitment to prioritization of making a home. This entire text is describing a household code, but in a way that is speaking to both the home and the church. It's an intertwining of home and church. This, this is God's design for how disciples are made. Healthy, thriving churches are going to be intertwined with healthy, thriving homes. Now, those homes are some, some of those homes have a, a single person or a group of single people in those homes. And so as you hear this like, call to, to making a home, having a place where human thriving is occurring, you don't have to be married to do this. My wife was talking to one of our single working folks who just got a new apartment. They have an extra bedroom. And she's like, yeah, are you going to rent that bedroom out? And she said, no. There's always someone that's needing a place to stay, uh, needing a, a few weeks, you know, where they can land before they go to their apartment. I'm just going to keep this bedroom open for hospitality. It's like, yes. <laughs> you don't have to be married to do that. You can do that as, as a single person or a group of single people. There's many a, a, a college house that's popped up at Mercy House where folks are, have, have a vision for uh, bringing people into the home with hospitality. When, when we were starting the church, this young couple, Austin and Sarah Evans, who'd been in our youth group back when we were in Texas, they uh, decided that they would come and live here and get a home and help us plant the church. And it was so strategic for us. We had another home other than the Crumb Rise that was in Amherst where they were hosting groups, hosting people, having people overnight. And, and, and there was like a five-year window there where they just served in our church to help get the church up and running. So beautiful. We still need that. <laughs> we still need that. We need more of that. Homes. That, that have a vision not just to make a home for yourself, but make a home where you invite people both from the church and in the world. I want to encourage men to, to, to seek employment and training such that they can give their wife that option. A lot of times, wives don't have that option. We talk to many wives that are like, I want to do this, but I can't because of finances. And so that's not always the... the, the 
something to blame on the husband, but I do want to exhort husbands to, to, to be moving toward, if, if, if you're not married, to be moving toward training, education, thinking about how could I support a wife one day when I'm married such that they could can, they can be free to make a home. And then the last commitment is to training the next generation. This seems obvious in this text. The, the, the folks in the church, the local church, should have a commitment to training the next generation. We all have reasons why we don't do this. Older people want to check out. Older people are like, man, I've, I've served my time. I, I, you know, I've worked hard, and now I'm going to play golf in Palm Springs. Don't do that. You serve God. You fulfill your calling to your last breath. That's what God's call is on your life. And it's, and it's so full of joy. Sacrifice, yes. <laughs> but it's such a joy-filled opportunity for you to pour into the lives of the next generation. Younger people think they don't have anything to offer. Not true. Did you, did you hear that verse? That don't let anyone look down on you because you're young? But instead, be an example? Like, figure out how you can reach back to the next generation. You may be a college student and you can reach back to the freshmen that are coming in in September. You may be a freshman and you can reach back and help the teens. Right? There's a way for you to reach back or for all of you to reach back and help with the MH kids. And so there, there's no one in this room that doesn't have an opportunity to reach back to a younger generation and to invest in those generations. And so I'd encourage you, take a step toward that this week. To sign up to, to, to lead a DG group or to help with MH kids or, or organically reach out to someone in the room. Meet, meet someone younger than you here and invite them to lunch today. Let's go down to Bueno and talk. Right? This is so essential for the mission of this church to continue on and to expand is this vision of reaching into the next generation. And why do we do this? We do this because... God has made a home with us. And now in response to the gospel, we make a home for others. Right? We were created to be dwelling with God. The whole universe was like a house for us to dwell with God in. But sin separated us from God and we weren't able to dwell with Him. But then God, in Christ, made a way for us to be brought home. This is what we're celebrating when we come to this table. We, we're coming home, right? How, how is it we can come home with God? It's because of what Christ did on the cross. He reminds us of that. In the night on which he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. You talk about a host. That's a host. In the same way, he took the cup and after he blessed it, he gave it to them saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He lets them know God's not just uh, sending Christ to die for their sins so that they can be reconciled with him. He's sending Christ to die for their sins so they can be reconciled with other believers in the church. Welcome home, right? We are mercy house. We're a household. The only way we became this household is because of what Christ did on the cross. And we're also looking forward to when we will be home for good with God, dwelling with Him for eternity. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for 
being at home with you. And we know that that came about through your sacrifice on the cross. We've been forgiven of our sins, that we've been reconciled with you relationally, but also reconciled with one another. Because we are brothers and sisters. We're your children. And so we, we, we dwell around this table this morning. And we remember when we were estranged from you, but now that we are brought back home and that we will be home with you, God, we're grateful for that. We celebrate that. And we pray, God, you would help this church to be home for many people, uh, both as a, as a church, but also as individual families and households that are welcoming those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, but also welcoming those who are not yet brothers and sisters in Christ into their homes. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a Christ follower, we, we welcome you home. We welcome you to the table. And uh, the way that table looks today,